0: Hello, and welcome to our eighth episode of Word of Mouth, our evangelization podcast here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. This is our September episode. I'm your host, Michael Horn, and I'm with Alan Schwab here from Incarnate Word Parish, who's involved in a lot of different things in his work and in his ministry and in his family as well. And welcome, Alan. And if you could, just please talk a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and why you're here today. Thank you,
1: Michael. Thank you. I was born and raised a Southern Baptist— But ran out of answers for the questions i had doctrines and so forth weren't there as far as church history it really wasn't understood and so the uh, the southern baptist church that i was at they actually suggested i look for another church that might have deeper answers that's what led me to the presbyterian church of america and in that case they did have a, a robust set of doctrines understanding of church history and kind of a systematic way of looking at life Unfortunately, the Presbyterian Church of America, at least historically, has been anti-Catholic. So things like the Pope is the Antichrist, the fact that our children weren't to be playing with Catholic children so that they wouldn't accidentally get married, that sort of thing, was part of the historical perspective of the PCA, of the Presbyterian Church. So at the, uh, the time where we got engaged, the elder, in a particularly conservative version of the PCA of the Presbyterian Church, they advised us to be on birth control. That is, for at least probably the first couple years of our marriage so that we could get our feet under ourselves and so that we could get up and running financially. And perhaps that makes a lot of sense to people, uh, except for the fact that my wife had quite a bit of experience when it came to being a chastity instructor as a Protestant in the Catholic Church. So she already knew about the theology of the body. She understood that the body is designed by God, for our purpose and for his glory. And uh, when you alter it, to whatever extent you alter it, you are changing that purpose, quite frankly. And so when we left that meeting with the elder and his wife, we realized that there was something not right about this recommendation. And it wasn't clarified until probably about a year ago when I met with your boss, Mm -hmm. Julie Bostick, and had a meeting with her and shared the same story with her. And she said, Alan, you said that the church... The denomination that you were at were conservative but she said the fact is, is that's not conservative and i'd never heard anybody actually put it into words that way so that was quite remarkable mm-hmm. for her to say that and by the way she's the um, director of office of laity and family life here at the right. archdiocese mm-hmm. so we were basically left to our own devices in the protestant world in the evangelical world it's up to you it's up to you to interpret the Bible when it comes to certain medical technologies that are modern and pervasive. And so when you flip to the back of your Bible, you don't find in the table of contents or the concordance, you don't find anything that says fetal tissue or abortifacients or contraception. Any of these kinds of modern technologies were never known in the first century when the Bible was recorded or before that. So you're really left to be on your own in the Protestant world, grasping at straws and trying to understand what really makes sense. Whereas if you listen to the Catholic teaching, Humanae Vitae, before that, after that, Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II's Angelus teachings, which there are 128 or some mm-hmm. some number of teachings, it's phenomenal, the thinking and the depth and the breadth of thinking when it comes to theology, the body. So that's what really was captivating for my wife when she was a Protestant, but she was working as a chastity instructor mm-hmm. in her
0: diocese. Yeah, and Alan, so how did you and your wife meet, and what's your wife's name?
1: Her name is Laura Ann, okay. and we met in a Presbyterian
0: church. She was at
1: seminary. Mm-hmm. She was studying to get her master's in theology at Reform Seminary, and I was taking a course there. I was considering becoming a pastor myself. And so we met at church, and we met at seminary, and it was at that point that I asked her to go out with me. And she's quite a remarkable lady as far as the breadth and understanding that she had of Reformation studies, but beyond that, the Catholic Church. And her teachings were so profound that I was actually losing sleep over Mm -hmm. whether or not we should remain Presbyterian, remain Protestant, Mm -hmm. or whether the church was actually the true church. You know, it's funny, in virtually every town there's a a street called Church Street, and what's unusual about it or what's interesting about it is the fact that every church on that street is thought to be Jesus' church. So whether it's Episcopalian or Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Catholic, they all claim the name of Jesus on their signs. They all claim to be a church. It's not mosques or something out of a synagogue. It's actually Jesus' church, but yet it's very confusing when you try to sort through who's telling the truth here where is the true church? And that's really what brought us to the question of, in the case of the Bible in John 17, where, and we had been married for roughly about 10 years at that point, and we're asking ourselves, what does John 17 mean, literally mean, when Jesus prayed to his father and he said that the church would be one. Not one of many on Church Street and not one of many 41,000 that Gordon-Conwell Seminary has recorded, that's a Protestant evangelical seminary, but literally just one church. And only the Catholic Church makes that claim. Mm -hmm. We studied the Eastern Orthodox, we studied the Lutherans and the Presbyterians. Everybody else has quite a disparate set of individual churches, and therefore different perspectives on theology.
0: Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's great to know, like you were talking about just that How comforting it is to know that we have a church, too, in addition to a book. A lot of religions claim to be a people of the book. We all often, as Christians and as Catholics in particular, get to talk about how we are people of a book and the person of Jesus Christ, who is that living word for us. And I think that's beautiful, too, for us to remember. So thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. And you just mentioned, I mean, a, a while back just in your story, I, I'm just—I wish we had more time with the podcast because when we spoke last week, too, it was just great to to hear kind of your story and, and your encounters with the Lord. And just coming from a theological background, you have a lot of knowledge, and obviously your wife has a lot of knowledge on this issue as well. And it's just—it's interesting to, to see another example of a couple, if you're familiar with David Williams and his wife, who yes. were both—their plan was basically to start their own church and to— use their theological knowledge to kind of present an, another option for people and and now and you're just talking about how you found that treasure in the Catholic Church and how yes. that that teaching was there and and that's beautiful and and the the unity that Christ desires among the churches and and the truth there that that is present with us in John 17 and I think it's great as well that we have this initiative that's been going on in the archdiocese just called B1 that the archbishop has highlighted four priorities for our archdiocese, just that we can become one and seek to find that unity, like you mentioned. And so you get into also, eventually, when we talked last week, you talked a lot about how you treasure the Catholic Church and just how uh, you consider sometimes things being dangerous outside the Church. Could you just talk a little bit more about that?
1: Right. Well, the concerns are, are many outside the Church. We're led as Protestants, as evangelicals, were led, in fact, we're coached. We approach our pastor with any significant doubt or concerns about our faith. We're coached into saying, yes, that we are saved. Uh, Every time you hear on the radio or podcasts uh, an evangelical, say it's a call-in show, and somebody expresses concerns about their faith, they are coerced almost. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't want to overstate it, but I think that they're cajoled into saying that they are, in fact, saved. What's interesting is that I don't know of any time that I'm going to be declared saved until after I die, mm-hmm. and I pray that I am. Mm-hmm. I know that our children, mm-hmm. as uh, we have seven children at home, and they, and we all struggle with sin, and, and they lapse into perhaps significant levels of sin, depending on how old they are. But we never would suggest that they're saved, even as evangelicals, but at a, at a certain age or what have you, we give them quite a bit of slack, or at least the pastors do. And the thought is, is that you have to encourage those who are extremely weak in their faith, and, and rightly so. But at the same time, we couldn't possibly predict where they're going to be in the next, say, 50 years of their life or even longer. So the question is about safety. I don't know, you know, when it comes to these kinds of issues. It doesn't seem very safe because you can't know how to address these kinds of issues. And the evangelical, some of the, the best thinkers out there, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller is one that I'm thinking about. He's written a great book called We Cannot Be Silent, and it addresses the sexual revolution. However, it doesn't state categorically, thou shalt not. In mm-hmm. other words, the guardrails are left off the mountain road, if you will, and you're you're left in a position of perhaps rolling off the side of the cliff and rolling down the, the mountain into a very unsafe place. Whereas right. the Catholic churches for 2,000 years have made it clear that that's the, these are where the guardrails are. Mm-hmm. Now, if
0: you elect to ignore them, then that's to your peril. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so as you transitioned from the Protestant world into the authority of Catholicism, which I think is a beautiful aspect of Roman Catholicism, is the authority that the Catholic Church has authority given it by Christ. Matthew sixteen eighteen is what we all know. And so there's that authority bestowed. And so you and your wife both realized just kind of the intellectual aspect of the Catholic faith, that it was based in reason, that the teaching was authoritative, but also certainly part of a deep and rich theological tradition, like you said, with John Paul II and with Paul VI Humanae Vitae and just the Church's century-old teaching on human sexuality and who is the human person, what is communion between spouses and such. And so that's a beautiful, beautiful element of our faith and it's a treasure for us certainly to to use to our advantage and to learn more about ourselves. And and so as you journeyed from that Protestant world how did you make the full crossing, I guess, as they say, to, towards the Catholic Church, the crossing of the, the Tiber, you know? And so what kind of helped you make that final step into the Catholic Church? Well, there were many things. It mm-hmm. wasn't just the sexual revolution, sure. although
1: that's pretty clear-cut. When mm-hmm. your teaching authority is locked into a 1642 time frame, mm-hmm. which is the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's what mm-hmm. we are subscribing to, all those luminaries are dead, so there's nobody left to reinterpret to readdress the modern, say, sexual revolution, the, uh, the medical technologies that, that enable it, and so on. So you then have to, what, create, stand up a whole new Westminster Assembly. The Westminster divines, they're, they're all gone, so there's nothing left as far as that teaching authority. So you're really at a crisis point there. And then, not only that, but when the pastor asked me to, to share communion with the people in our church, I asked him what I should say when I'm handing them the bread and he said well you're to say this is my body take and eat I said shouldn't I say this represents my body he said no it, you you're to say this is my body well this creates a little bit of a problem for somebody who's thinking through the issues and that's what Jesus was speaking about in chapter 6 I believe in mm-hmm. John chapter 6 and so it presents it sets up a a little bit of an issue where He wasn't saying this represents but he was literally saying this is now how do we come to terms with that in in a modern scientific context i don't quite frankly know Mm -hmm. you know i have a an aerospace engineering background (laughs) but that doesn't really that doesn't help me you know nothing really helps to grasp those meta questions and the philosophical issues Mm -hmm. that surround transubstantiation which is what jesus was speaking about there
0: Mm -hmm. sure so it's a different thing again the eucharist and in our meeting, you talked about how you kind of were brought in through the Latin Mass. and Yes. yes. So, sure.
1: Right. So when I when I was reading my way into the church when we were—it's not just me, but my, my, at least my wife and me— I asked her one evening when I came home, I said, I think that we need to be Catholic, and she said, well, then I'd like to be Latin Mass Catholics. She said that the, the teaching—she left the church when she was about 12 or 13 because the, the pulpits were largely silent on moral issues. Well, quite frankly, they're still pretty silent on moral issues. So I think that there's a new springtime, and I pray that it's sooner rather than later as far as pastors, our pastors, stepping up to the mics and saying this is what the Church teaches. But the Church, nevertheless, still has it on, the, on our books, and so we have the opportunity to come in to the Latin Mass. You felt that if you are participate in the Latin Mass, people might take that a little bit more seriously than the English Mass. And uh, perhaps so. So anyway, so we mm-hmm. came in that way and I came in through the 1962 Roman missile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't part of the
0: RCIA sure. process. Sure, yeah. oh, sure, that's, that's great. Yeah, and so you mentioned a little bit earlier that you have seven kids at home now and that uh, yes. you're originally trained as an aerospace engineer, which kind of leads us to our next topic of what are your goals and your dreams for your life? And what do you feel like is your mission as a Christian man in the world today? Well,
1: I, I asked my pastor that several years ago. <laughs> I said, Father, we might have some spare time on our hands. What should we do as an apostolate, perhaps? And he said, well, the main thing is you want to keep feeding your children, you want to keep clothing them, keep them bathed, keep you know, the rain and snow off of them. That's really your main focus. And anything else is ancillary to that, and it's great if you can do that. But really focusing on our family mm-hmm. is key. Also, when it comes to what I'm doing right now, I'm a financial advisor working with Vita Wealth Management, that's my firm, and what we do is we help people, we help organizations align their investments to their faith. So we were in the aerospace industry and that was great, but this is the ability to help people and really to minister to people in a quite a profound way to ensure that they can get from here to retirement and beyond and do it in a way that they're not compromised according to their, their values, especially Catholic
0: values. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And what are the blessings and challenges that you've experienced thus far in your life?
1: Well, the, the challenges are, are numerous. Anytime <laughs> somebody undertakes raising seven children mm-hmm. in, a, in a household, this is quite a profound thing. And I suppose Jesus knew something about it, but I know a lot <laughs> about it, and it ain't easy. Sure. And I don't recommend anybody enter this platform uh, lightheartedly or mm-hmm. thinking that marriage, the institution of marriage, is, is a simple thing. When you're following the church's teaching when you're open to children and god says yes you can have Mm -hmm. one you can have two you can have several or (laughs) you know in our case seven sure this puts you on roller coasters that Mm -hmm. here in the midwest don't compare (laughs) nor in the world Mm -hmm. Uh, this is an otherworldly level of challenges as far as the ups and downs of life sure it's a lot of ups a lot of blessings but it can be quite challenging Mm -hmm. To raise a family. So when you really follow the church's teaching, whether you're called to be a priest or religious or married, in my case, it's extremely difficult. It's extreme blessing, but it's amazing because when you follow it, it really intensifies your life and really forces you to become, really to grow up, to be sober-minded, to really put away childish things as best I can. I'm still not there yet, but to really assume the calling that Jesus has for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful.
0: It's beautiful. And, Alan, if somebody asked you how you should define evangelization, what would you say to them?
1: Evangelization is simply opening your mouth and and sharing the faith. In the case of a couple of Mormons that were at our home about a year ago, I just like to ask people questions Sure. and ask them questions so that they eventually get on their phone. Or if I asked the Mormons, I said, do you have a phone or a computer at your home? And they're missionaries, and apparently they didn't have either one. And I said, well, there's a really good library nearby, and you could just type these things in. And I said, you know, your prophets and your leaders of, your, of the Mormon church are in the not too distant future going to be sitting at the feet of the Pope asking these very same questions and getting these, the answers that only the church has. We've looked all over the world. There's no other religion. It's not there in Buddhism or Hinduism, not there in Mormonism, Protestantism. It's completely only known according to the church Mm -hmm. Uh, as far as the theology of the body. And so, to me, that's a huge component of sharing one's faith. For me to share my faith, it may even be considered to be subtle. But the fact is is that just about everybody gets it, because at the end of the day, when marriage, as I was reading this morning early, uh, Christopher West, who has studied at the feet of John Paul II, he said that basically that marriage is in the process of being crucified right now. Jesus Mm -hmm. was crucified. The next crucifixion is marriage. And perhaps he was right, but he said on the third day, even marriage will
0: rise again. Hmm. So there, there is hope sure. at the end of the day. Sure. So like you said, I think for those listeners out there, it's important for us to realize that even if we don't have all the answers to every question, that it's important that we just know where to find them and where to direct people and to ask good questions and to just continue to explore our faith and research it and know it to the best of our ability when we're challenged and when we have to give testimony to our faith. And so based on Alan's very deep story today, we're going to spend the catechesis on marriage, sexuality, and the gift of children. And so we have some passages from papal documents and from our Catechism of the Catholic Church, and also from two great saints just to uh, focus on these topics today. And so we begin at paragraph 2366 of the Catechism. It reads, Fecundity is a gift, an end of marriage, for conjugal love naturally tends to be fruitful. As Alan mentioned, sometimes very fruitful. And a child springs from the very heart of that mutual giving between the spouses as its fruit and fulfillment. And so the church, too, which is on the side of life, teaches that it is necessary that each and every marriage act remain ordered, per se, to the procreation of human life. So, this particular doctrine of the church that's been mentioned several times by the magisterium of the church is based on the inseparable connection that God has established, which man on his own initiative may not break, between the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. And so, it's always important when we talk about marriage and the sexual union just to preserve the unitive and procreative aspect of the Marriage Act, and so that's that comes as well from Humanae Vitae, paragraphs 11 and 12 for further research there. And then it continues in the Catechism on 2367, married couples should regard it as their proper mission to transmit human life and to educate their children. They should realize that they are thereby cooperating with the love of God, the Creator, and are in a certain sense its interpreters. They will fulfill this duty with a sense of human and Christian responsibility in their lives. So I'm currently reading a wonderful papal document as well that mentions just the, the beautiful responsibilities of procreation and education, and it comes from Gaudium et Spes, the second part of it, and I believe the first chapter, and just very, very good at highlighting these roles of parents and the beauty of the calling. And then furthermore, on 2368 in the Catechism, it reads that a particular aspect of the responsibility as parents concerns the regulation of procreation again. For just reasons, spouses may wish to space the births of their children, It is their duty to make certain that their desire is not motivated by selfishness, but in conformity with the generosity that's appropriate to responsible parenthood. And again, it's very difficult, like Alan said, sometimes to be open to life and marriage and and just the roller coaster that it may create with several children. But we must consider just the beauty of the gift of children and how it's important to just remember that each action that we take Uh, We can't give too much significance to the intention or circumstances of the action, but the objective criteria of the action. So that's kind of a basic teaching of moral theology that we just continue to assess in our actions on a day-to-day basis the objective act in itself and the criteria of that objective act, so the object of the action, and which means that we look here at the criteria that's drawn from the nature of the person and the acts, and the criteria that respect the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love that we find in marriage. And so this is possible only if the virtue of married chastity is practiced with sincerity of heart. That comes from Gaudium et Spes, paragraph uh, 51. And so that's just important for us to to remember just to look at the object of our actions. uh, What is the action in itself? And so finally, just on this topic uh, as well from paragraph 2370, it's important for couples to consider periodic continence and abstinence from the sexual act just to naturally regulate their births of children, just to be in conformity with the objective criteria of morality that I mentioned above. So these methods respect the body of the spouses and encourage tenderness between them and favor the education of an authentic freedom rooted in true love. So a lot of times people like to challenge the church and and suggest that natural family planning is just the same thing as contraception and it's not when we consider like i mentioned the objective criteria of the act itself and so remaining open to life and not doing an action that would prevent it intentionally taking those means to prevent a pregnancy is is much different than engaging in the marital act during an infertile time and so it's just important for us to consider what is the object of the act, like I said. And so every action which is in anticipation of the conjugal act or its accomplishment or the development of its natural consequences proposes, whether as an end or as a means to render procreation impossible is an intrinsic evil that our church teaches. And that's from Familiaris Consortio, paragraph 32. So it's very important for us to just remember the beauty of the gift of life and the openness to children that the conjugal act should feature for married spouses. And it's beautiful to remember that in the beauty of the family. And so in the catechism, it continues at 2373 and just mentions very briefly that sacred scripture and the church's traditional practice see in large families a great sign of God's blessing and the parents' responsibility. And it's just uh, the parents' generosity as well. So it's it's just another example that we talk a lot about, especially with John Paul II's Theology of the Body and the union between spouses, that the spouses and their children can manifest in an analogous sense the love and the communion of persons in the Blessed Trinity, and that that love has the power to bear fruit in the form of another person as the Holy Spirit is eternally generated from uh, the Father and the Son. And so married couples who discover that they are sterile often suffer greatly. And this is something that is, is very difficult and that we should certainly offer our prayers for those who suffer from infertility at various times in their lives. And we look at Scripture and see this in Abraham and Sarah and Rachel and Jacob and, and different couples in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as well. And so it's important just that we realize that a child is not something that, that is owed to anyone, but is a great gift. Child is a great gift for us and the supreme gift of marriage is a human person in the form of a child. Finally, the gospel shows that physical sterility is not an absolute evil, though. Spouses who still suffer from infertility after exhausting legitimate medical procedures should continue to unite themselves with the Lord's cross, the source of all spiritual fecundity, and they can give expression to their generosity by it also being open to adoption, adopting those who have been abandoned, perhaps, or performing demanding services for other people. And so as we look at the vocations that Alan mentioned, whether single life or marriage or religious life or priesthood all of those vocations are called to bear spiritual fruit and or physical fruit in the world today and so just as a married couple often has the blessing of bearing children so too must priests and religious and single people bring forth spiritual fruit in their day-to-day ministries and lives and to conclude our catechesis today on the beauty of human sexuality and the gift of marriage and the gift of children We have two quotes, first from St. Gianna and second from St. Teresa of Calcutta. First, St. Gianna has this wonderful quote that our body is a cynical, it is a monstrance. Through its crystal, the world should see God and the beauty of our calling to be people who can manifest God's presence in the world through our bodies today. And then finally, St. Teresa of Calcutta wrote that the child is the beauty of God present in the world, that greatest gift to a family. And so I just encourage our listeners today, as we continue to seek to evangelize, to know more of the Catholic faith, and to, to share it with other people, just to be open to reading more about the Church's teaching on human sexuality and marriage and the gift that it is to married couples to have children. And so we just pray in a special way today for all married couples who have been blessed with children and also those with uh, that are struggling with fertility. At the moment, we offer our prayers and sacrifices for them, that they may be open to the Lord offering gifts in different forms as well to them and to continue to persevere in their struggles with infertility. We just continue to pray for graces upon those in the priesthood and religious life as well, bearing spiritual fruit for the world. And we just continue to beg for wisdom and knowledge from the Holy Spirit that he may guide us as we continue to evangelize and share the truth with other people and we just want to close with Alan's final thoughts today on just practical tips for evangelization for people. I know that Alan comes with more intellectual approach to his conversion and to his evangelization and seeing the beauty of the intellectual teaching of the church on marriage and sexuality and the beauty of that teaching and its root in our reason. And so as we go forward, Alan, anything that you would recommend to us as we continue to evangelize? Thank you, Michael. Yes, I
1: think of two different things. I like the unique aspects of the church that are tangible, palpable, and that are totally relevant to us today. The sexual revolution has eaten our lunch in many of our families. We're talking about many divorces, many abortions, some of which we don't even know about. For me, and for many others, and so the theology of the body—I call it John Paul II's Mm -hmm. theology of body. It's not just his. He's obviously a saint. I'm so thankful for that. Unfortunately, I didn't come in under his time as pope. I came in a little bit after that. But the theology of the body is so powerful. The other part of this as a financial advisor, and I have to read this, uh, this little disclaimer uh, that lawyers have told me, advisory services are offered through Creative Financial Designs, Incorporated, a registered investment advisor, and securities are offered through CFD Investments, Inc., a registered broker-dealer member Fenra and SPIC, 2704 South Gower Road, Kokomo, Indiana. Vita Wealth Management LLC is neither owned nor controlled by CFD companies. So as a financial advisor, SRI, the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, socially responsible investing guidelines are also profound. Our bishops have done an awesome job of sorting out what to invest in and what to avoid. Unfortunately, most of us in our investments, in our portfolios, if we have off-the-shelf mutual funds or you know, even just stocks, perhaps bonds, in our portfolios, we're often investing in things that are against the church's teaching, which also touches, happens to touch on the theology of the body, abortifacients, contraception, fetal tissue, pornography, and some other issues that the church has said, these are guardrails, these are not to be invested in. And so we're in the process of working with the USCCB to ensure that those guidelines are the best that they can be in a modern context. So when it comes to like a diocese and archdiocese and plan, making sure that every employee at every archdiocese and diocese across the country has access to a wide variety of socially responsible investments, including Catholic responsible investments. Right now, that's not the case. There are very few investments, and most dioceses don't even have one investment that employees have access to. So anyway, we're in the process of building that and developing that. And I would just encourage everyone to ask deep questions, just like I encouraged our Mormon friends. Go back, type these things in, and ask yourself the question, how did we get here? How did the sexual revolution come about? Asking and answering those questions are really critical. And encouraging people to read and research. The Church has, I don't know, thousands, millions of documents online. Nothing is hidden, so just go out and reach Go into the wealth, into the, the gold and the silver and the vast riches that the church has. And if you're on your phone, just wherever you are, take time to to learn more about the church and what she teaches. It's phenomenal. And then just be willing to go out and share this faith with others. It's really not that hard. Once you learn a little bit, It's it's a phenomenal faith. I'm just so thankful to be Catholic in the midst of a very powerful hurricane out there that's maybe a Cat 5 or worse. We're on a ship that's very stable and very thankful for that from our Holy Father on down to our Archbishop here, Carlson, and and our priests. Mm -hmm. It's a very big blessing in 2017 to be here.
0: Well, thank you so much, Alan. It was a pleasure to be with you as well, and thank you so much for offering your perspective coming from a Protestant background and telling us how you kind of— found your way into the Catholic Church and and saw the beauty of the teachings of the Church. And so I just want to remind uh, our listeners today that if you don't want to miss an episode of this Word of Mouth podcast or any other podcast that's produced by our Archdiocese of St. Louis, including the Catholic Gateway podcast, make sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or pretty much any other podcast app that you can find. Just search for the Archdiocese of St. Louis to find us, And once you've subscribed, just make sure to rate and share us with your friends. And it just helps us to continue to evangelize and to reach more people through technology and the beauty and blessing of technology in our lives. And so we continue to just pray for all the people of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and we ask for your prayers as well as we continue to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And so this is our September episode of Word of Mouth, and this has been Alan Schwab, and I'm your host, Michael Horn. May God bless you. Thank you.